Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. My good friend, Dr. Kristen Luprecht, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk, Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and uh, the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. And Professor Luprecht is with us. Christian, thank you very much for stepping into the breach. And as you look at what's happening in, in Ukraine now, and particularly... Um, the Mariupol area, which has been making headlines since almost the very beginning of this Russian invasion. And you listen to what Putin is saying and uh, what is being said in return from Ukraine. How, how do you how do you boil this down? How do you how do you uh, what, what's your analysis of this? So Mariupol has really been a success for Ukraine, even if in the end they're unable to hold the city insofar as it has pinned down about 10,000 Russian troops and, of course, a significant amount of uh, artillery and uh, other Russian assets that Russia then has not been able to redeploy to other efforts, in particular uh, Putin's now more limited ambitions in eastern Ukraine. And so in that sense alone, it's uh, it, it's it's been a considerable success. The Russians now seem to be losing patience. Uh, yesterday, apparently, they called in uh, Tupolev 22M uh, strategic bombing capability. Um, and so it looks one way or another, they're uh, going to try to put an end to the last resistance, that pockets of resistance that exist within Mariupol. But it shows, I mean, the other reason why I think Mariupol gives us hope that even if in the end the defenders cannot hold out in Mariupol, uh, many of the population centers the Russians would be facing in eastern Ukraine are somewhat similar in the sense that it shows the Russians have great difficulty taking urban centers and have great difficulty with urban warfare. And so if it takes them weeks to take Mariupol, uh, it suggests that even the more limited ambitions that the Russians now have in eastern Ukraine, um, uh, they may very well not succeed and that this might be more of a toss-up and more of an even match between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, than the new surge of uh, Russian um, uh, assets and soldiers in eastern Ukraine would suggest. Is there an argument to be made, and this hasn't been talked about for a couple of weeks, but it certainly was the topic of international discussion for quite some time, and that is the creation of a NATO-enforced no-fly zone. Uh, General Hillier, uh, very strongly believes that that should happen. He told us that two weeks ago on this program. And the former Supreme Commander of NATO, General Philip Breedlove, uh, United States Air Force, also believes there should be a no-fly zone. At the very least, he believes there should be a humanitarian no-fly zone over western Ukraine. So if the Russians were to bring their military aircraft into the area, into the western area of Ukraine, where there are refugee columns get, trying to get out, in that case, then they get attacked by NATO planes, and they know it's there, and they've been told it's there, and uh, and then, you know... What will happen will happen. Is that a, is that a sustainable argument? 
So it's a difficult situation for NATO because Putin has been trying to reframe this conflict as a conflict between Russia and the West, Russia and the United States, Russia and NATO. So the more NATO gears up, the more that feeds and bolsters the narrative to his domestic and Russian audience um, in terms of that this is really about this broader conflagration um, uh, with Russia and the West. And NATO has been very circumspect about not trying to feed that. I think NATO is also keeping this no-fly zone as a bit of a NATO has to be able to continue to escalate because Putin still continues the escalation ladder. He could resort to uh, non-conventional weapons, chemical weapons, possibly tactical nuclear weapons, who knows? And so NATO has to have an ability to uh, to escalate on its end. And so I think the no-fly zone would be a significant escalation on NATO's side that would require a very strong justification that Putin now poses not just an immediate and existential threat to Ukraine, but to the broader um, uh, to the broader NATO alliance and to the international order. And the use of chemical weapons, let alone nuclear weapons, um, would likely constitute that sort of rationale. So I think NATO is trying to make sure it still has some ability in its back pocket to uh, to continue to escalate in an effort to contain Putin, because, of course, the objective here is try to get Putin not to resort to some of these extremely dangerous and heinous weapons. And 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 once we get involved in no-fly zone, sort of all bets are off in terms of uh, what the consequences might be. It's also not clear to what extent that no-fly zone is really going to make a huge difference for the Ukrainians tactically, because, of course, they have the short-range defensive capabilities. What they're lacking currently and what they're subject to is, of course, the layered defense. They need medium and long-term defense against uh, Russian cruise missiles and against Russian strategic bombing. And I think one of the things that's held the Russians off from strategic bombing is precisely because they know that then could get NATO more into debate over no-fly zone. So the no-fly zone has been sort of a bargaining chip uh, that I think NATO has been has left open. Okay, so sometimes you look at this as a, just as a human being and you say, all right, so it's strategic and military uh, thinking, planning. But at the same time, you have people being murdered in large numbers, displaced in even larger numbers. And and the, the responsibility factor that we have for one another uh, comes into play, at least emotionally. You say, where's the line? Where exactly is the line? So if you cross this line, we're going for you. If you don't cross the line, we'll just let happen what's going to happen. And we'll keep a strategic uh, advantage or strategic options in our back pockets. It's it's difficult. I, I understand that the, the, the planners look at this and they'll say, yeah, this is what we have to do from the human perspective. Boy, it's a tough sell. Yeah, but the risk is, of course, you're dealing with a country that ultimately has the capability in both of tactical as well as strategic nuclear weapons, and has made it clear that they are prepared to use those weapons, not just on this occasion, but they signaled to the West in 2014 um, on uh, the uh, on, on Crimea and on Donbass and Luhansk uh, that Russia would be prepared to use nuclear weapons if NATO got uh, too involved in the conflict. And so uh, there is, unfortunately, uh, nuclear weapons uh, allow Russia uh, a leverage that perhaps other countries won't have. And this is really the tragedy out of this conflict that we're likely going to see a proliferation 
uh, nuclear proliferation by other countries, because clearly the lesson is never give up your, your nuclear weapons. It's going to make it impossible for us to get North Korea to give up their nuclear weapons, for instance, after this. Right. And other countries will realize that if you want to keep your neighbors out of your backyard, well, nuclear weapons is uh, um, is is the leverage to that particular end. Um, so I think uh, political realism, unfortunately, uh, continues to trump uh, some of the ability that we would in principle have to mitigate some of the, not just the human suffering, but Russia's deliberate and intentional military doctrine of inflicting human carnage to achieve political and military objectives. So Ukraine has said, I have to take a break here, and thank you very much for doing this, stepping in. I really appreciate it. Uh, But Ukraine has said we should never have given up our nuclear weapons because they wouldn't be in our backyard if we were able to say to them, all right, so you cross this line and we're coming from you for you with everything we have in, in 30 seconds or so are we not in a situation where we're dealing with a madman who eventually is going to push us to the edge where we'll have to say to say to ourselves okay we're going to do what we have to do and we will do whatever we can strategically to make sure that he doesn't use nukes but at some point we're going to have to say here's the line you crossed it here are the consequences does that happen i mean where's the line christian well, the Russians have a strategic deterrent capability that is both land-based, air-based, and sea-based that would make it impossible for us to intercept um, an ability, a large-scale uh, a launch by uh, by Russia, um, whether it be tactic against multiple targets in Europe or strategically against North America. And so that ultimately is what mutual assured destruction as uh, shelling developed in 1960, unfortunately, based on. Yeah, yeah. The MAD uh, theory. Mutually assured destruction. Christian, uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't think too highly of his own intelligence agencies. He's put uh, quite a, well, I think quite a number of them in, in prison. The, the leader of the uh, intelligence agency that, or the intelligence group that gave him the information that he says he used is in jail now. But what do you think? Uh, a couple of things here. We've got Finland and Sweden. Uh, they've never been part of NATO. They're talking about joining NATO now. Putin's warning them not to. Again, pointing to the fact that he's got a long fuse at the end of a nuclear weapon or many nuclear weapons. Um, what do you think about that aspect, Sweden and Finland? And what are your expectations about what Putin's going to be doing? And then what are his next moves? So they've been close associate members of NATO for some time. The What I think is moving the popular opinion in particular in Finland, which is a 1300 kilometer border with Russia and which, of course, has fought uh, a couple of wars uh, with Russia. Incidentally, the 1940 uh, war with Russia might be also some model for how the current conflict is likely to end with Russia essentially taking uh, a chunk of land out of Ukraine. That uh, F- Finland, I think, is concerned about extended deterrence. What NATO members benefit from is that uh, if uh, Putin attacks with nuclear weapons, uh, what holds him off is extended nuclear deterrence by the United States. Um, and with tactical nuclear weapons already having been parked in the Kaliningrad exclave, uh, in particular Eskander missiles and presumably uh, the nuclear warheads that go on those, uh, the tactical nuclear warheads that go on those missiles, um, both uh, Sweden and Finland are immediately vulnerable to uh, tactical nuclear attack um, by Russia. Um, and so I think what they're looking for is that broader uh, U.S. Uh, security 
uh, umbrella. It looks like Finland might be closer to this conversation than uh, Sweden, but there's already been significant integration uh, in particular across the three Nordic countries, because Norway, of course, being a NATO member, um, especially in the air defense uh, domain since 2014. So this would be an evolutionary step, I would see it rather than as a revolutionary step. Okay, what is Putin going to do now about uh, Ukraine? He's suffered a lot of losses, as you pointed out. The Ukrainian military has handled itself exceedingly well. Hopefully, they'll be armed even better. Canada should, according to General Hillier, be doing far more to uh, arm the Ukrainians. But uh, what are his options and what do you expect him to do, given the reality that he's facing? Yeah, that's a good question because I think nobody quite knows, right? It depends on what his aims are. Are his aims geographic, that is to say, taking territory? Are his aims political, that is to say, bringing to fall the regime, the democratically elected legitimate regime in Kiev and uh, bringing about regime change in Kiev? Are they domestic, so that is to say, primarily shoring up support uh, for him because, of course, of course was, was fledgling in light of his mishandling of the pandemic and the, in the economy? Uh, or what I think has always been his aim all along is to divide NATO and is to divide the European Union. So that's why I think the coming weeks will be telling, because what Putin will try to capitalize on is see if he can drive wedges uh, where, where we no longer have that political deterrence, that is to say, uh, the consensus and resolution by uh, resolute standing by all NATO members. And uh, we'll see what the elections in France bring. Um, but uh, uh, Putin will continue to try to divide NATO. And so I think what happens on the ground tactically uh, is always intended to see where Putin might be able to find uh, a wedge that he can drive in the alliance. Where does Germany fit into uh, this entire equation? They're, they're upping their military defense budget. They're providing assistance to Ukraine. But at the same time, they're purchasing great amounts of natural gas and oil from Russia, much to the displeasure of other EU members. So where does Europe's largest economy fit into this whole equation? Well, there's a famous quote by former U.S. ambassador to Germany saying that Germany is a strategy-free space. Uh, that is to say that perhaps the Germans did not pay, play ahead uh, quite far enough on this. And of course, considerable blame being heaped here on the former chancellor. But Germany has since the 1960s and Willy Brandt always tried to find a balance between, on the one hand, deterring Russia, on the other hand, trying to engage Russia. And given Germany's and Berlin's proximity to Moscow, I suppose politically it sort of makes some sense. You also have a population, as in Canada, that is extremely skeptical um, about uh, in, uh, military engagements and war as a result of Germany's history. We'll also have to see whether Germany is actually able to get the announcement of that massive increase in defense spending uh, through the chancellor's own party, let alone get his coalition members to agree to it. So there's considerable debate. And of course, the Germans are among the most reticent in providing heavy weapons to Ukraine. They're the ones who scuttled uh, the Polish offer of MiG-29s uh, to Ukraine. Uh, so Germany is certainly um, the, the country, along with France, one must say, that is trying to um, uh, provide a balance here. And in terms of 
making too many, too rash a move on Russian oil and gas imports. Germany and Italy in particular have been the blocking voices within the EU and within uh, within NATO, in part because there's concern about how quickly uh, Germany would be able to transition away. But I think Germany is also thinking that there might be opportunity here to continue to use some of this as leverage, that if you go okay. too hard on the sanctions all out, uh, then, uh, uh, then that reduces uh, the leverage over Putin. Right. Um, uh, this is the challenge of an alliance uh, and of a quasi-federation like the European Union. There are many different voices, and uh, we need to find some Sort of some common ground at the same time countries such as uh, Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom uh, can and should be pushing a lot harder to make sure that Putin knows there are voices uh, that are uh, quite prepared to counter his aggression uh, quite overtly. I think there's little dispute that he's the uh, wealthiest man in the world, Elon Musk, and a uh, $43 billion bid for Twitter, and there are people who are asking, yeah, is this legit, or is there something else at play here? Let's talk about that. And uh, joining us is Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky, Professor Alan Klugel. Um, professor Klugel, thank you very much for, for taking the time. I know you're expert in this particular area, this particular field. How different, or I suppose unusual, is the takeover bid by Elon Musk, takeover bid of Twitter, and what would a more expected method for a company takeover look like to you? Well, uh, hi, Roy, and uh, thank you very much for having me on, first and foremost. Uh, it's a very, very unusual way uh, to go about this. Um, in general, there are about three ways, three traditional ways to take over a public company. Uh, the first is you can convince shareholders that you should be in charge. You go to them, you ask for their votes. It's called a proxy fight, right? And then you can take over management that way. He's not doing that. Uh, the second way you could do it is you can say, hey, shareholders, you should sell me your shares so that I can put myself in charge. I can get a majority of shares. That's called a uh, tender offer, and he's not doing that either. That comes with certain legal responsibilities. You have to keep it open for a while. It has to be binding. You have to tell everybody where your funding is coming from, and he's doing none of that. Uh, the final way, the third way, is to essentially say to the board, hey, you should sell me the company. I would do a better job running it. You should sell me at a certain price. But he, and that's close to what he's doing. It looks the most like what he's doing, but he's doing it in a way that's more or less guaranteed to be unsuccessful. He's, uh, he's, he's saying, take it or leave it to this offer. A board can't do that. They can't just take the first offer they hear. They have to go out and see if somebody has a better offer, if they have better funding, if they have better plans for the company. So by saying take it or leave it, he's essentially saying you have to you know, uh, uh, violate your own duties to the corporation in order to listen to me. It just, there isn't really a lot that strikes me as a serious offer in this letter that Elon has sent. So what's your sense of uh, why Mr. Musk may have decided this approach? I mean, I, I, I really hesitate to get into the sort of psychology of Elon Musk, because, you know, you'll always be, uh, you'll always be surprised. But the one thing it does, more than anything, is it puts the most pressure on Twitter's board, on their management, without actually committing or, uh, you know, uh, Elon to any particular course of action. He said very clearly this is a non-binding offer, and there's no real risk for him if they say no, and there's no real risk for him if they say yes, because he could pull out at any time. So in a way, he's put Twitter's management in a real tough position, and you see that with the way they've adopted this poison pill defense. That's really honestly less about what 
Elon is doing, but the possibility that somebody else comes along and piggybacks a new uh, offer on, on, on the back of Elon's letter. So he's really put them in a bind without really doing anything to uh, you know, change his position at all. So it'd be like uh, you know, taking my financial realities into consideration. It would be me going to a car dealership and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy this car, but I'm not going to sign any contract. I'm just going to buy it, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I expect you guys to have it ready for me. Something oh, similar. pretty much. Uh, but it also says, uh, it also says, uh, yeah, even though I don't have a contract, you can't go out and see if anybody else would like to buy this car. Right? You have to take it off your lot. You have to essentially say, uh, this is no longer for sale, and I might or might not buy it. <laughs> I don't think I'd be very successful at that, but then I'm not the richest man in the world either. It's uh, Exactly. And, and imagine yeah. if your Twitter's bored, and now you have to, you have to take this seriously, even though, again... It seems to be done mostly as a lark. What about this poison pill uh, defense by the Twitter board? What's that about? Sure. So a poison pill is, uh, is it's, it's, it's a way of deterring people, uh, you know, hostile investors, which Mr. Musk may or may not be, of buying up lots of shares in your particular company so that they can change management. Essentially says that when a particular investor gets to a threshold, here it's 15% for Twitter, um, that every other investor, not the, not the hostile one, but every other investor gets basically free or discounted shares of the company. So all of a sudden now there are much, many more shares in play, right? It makes it much more difficult for the uh, hostile investor to go out and, into the market and buy up those shares, and it, tank, and it makes it uh, significantly more expensive for that investor as well. So it, it hurts the company's share price. That's why it's called a poison pill. But it also deters these sort of hostile investors from buying up all the stock. So a very hot-button issue these days is freedom of speech in Canada constitutionally enshrined as freedom of expression. But Elon Musk says his interest in Twitter is about protecting free speech. Where does that fit into the business equation, if it does? Or is that just the guy stepping forward and says, here's why I'm doing this? I mean, let me put it this way. I think it's very easy to defend uh, the concept of free speech in the abstract actually putting together a moderation policy for a social media platform, that's much, much harder. So if you're positioning yourself as this outsider and you're trying to appeal to the broadest number of people, why not say, yes, I'm doing this to promote free speech. Who doesn't love free speech? Actually doing that as a member of Twitter management, right, that's a much harder, much more, you know, uh, more granular and honestly much more boring process, right? And that's not something that I think, you know, uh, uh, Elon necessarily wants to get his hands dirty with. Professor Kugel, what do you expect is going to come out of this entire exercise? When we get when we get to the end of it, what are we going to be talking about? <laughs> I mean, I think at the end of it, several things will happen. One is that Twitter will have to really, you know, consider where they're going as a public company. They'll have to say, you know, okay. He wasn't serious about this, but somebody else might be. And how are we going to deal with that? So that's number one. I don't think he's going to go through with this again, because if he really wanted to, there are any number of avenues that he could have taken that would have been honestly more likely to be successful than this one. And I think at the end of it, what Elon will eventually be, and this is much, maybe this is what he would prefer to be rather than the person who actually runs Twitter. He gets to be forever the person who could have saved Twitter. The person who could have made Twitter better, if only they'd listened to him.
right? And so he gets to be that forever without actually taking on both the legal liability of being an actual member of Twitter management and just the personal responsibility of having to make these kind of hard decisions. I, I don't know if I'd ever want to argue with anybody who has their own space program because that's that's, that's, a, that's a reality. That's a ballpark that I've never been able to get into, and I, I doubt at this time in my life I'll ever even be able to get to the gate. But uh, this is a final question of the 30 seconds we have left. Do you think that this attempt, uh, or quasi-attempt to purchase Twitter is, is actually going to scare somebody up who'll say, yeah, I'm going to do this, I've thought about it, but uh, Elon Musk has just given me the push that I needed. I mean, I think that, you know, Elon has, among other things, an ability to move share prices. And if somebody steps forward and says, hey, I could, if I could, uh, you know, get, uh, get a hold of Twitter, get control of this, in a way that brings Elon to some degree on board and can make Twitter a more valuable property whenever, whenever it is I want to sell it or something like that, that could happen. I just don't think that person is going to be Elon Musk. Last weekend, after we discussed the $10 federal provincial daycare program, I received an email from the owner of two professional daycare operations in North Vancouver. She doesn't support the federal government, federal provincial daycare funding, and we're going to find out why. Now, before I speak to my guest, I just want to share with this, this with you. The research by Cardis.ca, and you can find it, challenges the 2021 federal budget projected over five years national day t- daycare cost of $30 billion and $9.2 billion annually afterward. Cardis has two projections. The more expensive has five year, a year five rather, alone costing $36.8 billion. That's year five alone with Ottawa covering $9.2 billion, parents $3.8 billion through user fees, and the provinces are left to cover $23.3 billion. That's Cardis.ca. Carolyn owns and operates two daycares in North Vancouver. And Carolyn, good to talk to you. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to, again, it's good to talk to you. It was very interesting to get your email because you point out in another note to me that a key point to you is that the governments, and this isn't new, they've been doing this for some time, Governments think they know better than parents and the daycare operators, but they're limiting the options for both the parents and for you. Share that with us, please. What's the thinking? Um, well, I, I, since they announced the $10 a day program, I've been getting a lot of calls, you know, asking when they're going to be accepted, when we're going to be accepted onto the program. But my key point is, like, you know, parents need to make their own choices, right? Because every family has different needs and, um, you know, do they want to stay home with their children? Do they want to have a nanny? Do they want to have a relative relative look after their child? Or do they want to send their child to group or family daycare? But all the money that the government is, is, you know, offering is not going directly to the families right now. So they don't have any choices and that limits us as well. So, So they're pushing the families parents to accept the model that governments want Mm -hmm. and daycare as you know has been a stumbling block for federal and provincial governments for years this isn't anything new this has been a stumbling block for years now they have this agreement and it's not really complimentary you wrote to me it's not complimentary to the daycare operators either tell us about that 
Well, um, so what's happening once we are accepting their program is that the private operators, I've sent this, you know, to my accountant, and the private operators are allowed to make a 3% profit off of their daycare. And if they make any more than that, we have to send the money back to the government. So, you know, when I, I'm looking at a, a daycare, I'm providing lunches, you know, breakfast two or three snacks, and my food cost is all incorporated into that, you know, the daycare as well. And, you know, I, I just, we're just sort of all at a loss. We, we're offering the best care that we can to families, but, you know, we can't operate or run on 3% profit. Nothing. I mean, it leaves us nothing, you know, so. No, not 3%. Yeah. Is there going to be, do you think there's going to be pushback? Uh, nationally from daycare operators? It's probably not, I mean, I'm thinking it's not just you who's feeling the way you do. No, um, there is a couple of Facebook groups, and a lot of people on the groups are saying that they're just simply going to leave their businesses. So I don't know um, in the end what's going to happen, but if the government is offering basically us nothing, then what choice do we have, you know? Some of us have mortgages on our homes and we have a lot of expenses, so I don't know. It's going to sound perhaps unexpected for many people to hear you who own and operate two daycare centers to be challenging the, what the governments have decided to do because the feeling is, mm-hmm. boy, this is one that uh, the daycare operators are going to love and the parents are going to love, but you've heard from parents, as have I, and now I'm hearing from you, the daycare operator, saying this isn't what the, what we wanted, this isn't what we need, it's not profitable, it's not what we can go forward with. How much no. consultation was there with you and with other daycare operators you know before this program was announced? Um, we just kind of felt like this was thrown on us, you know, um, as much as we put our thoughts out there when we were asked to, but it still has, is going forward with the way that they want, so... Okay, so when they come back, and you wrote this to me as well, about this to me, when governments come back and they say, well, look, we've been providing incentives to daycare operators over the last couple of years, particularly during the pandemic. Talk to us about that. Well, the um, wage incentive grant is for the staff. So, you know, it's really hard to get staff for daycare. So um, it's an underpaid section of you know, the workforce. So the government offered to increase their wages by $4 an hour, and that's to recruit people coming into the daycare situation, right? Um, so the other, um, sorry, we just, we, the other is the, um, the daycare. Um, so basically the government gives each daycare um, $350 per child for under three spaces, and $100 per child for a three to five to lower the parent fees. So we still have to report on all of that. Like, you know, I'm reporting this year. Why do I need to raise my fees? You know, well, I'm saying because my, my food program is included with my fees. And so I'm having to prove to them that I've had unexpected expenses, you know. So it basically they're into all of our books and everything. And, you know, this is very... These programs have been going on for a while now, so these are these are offered to us before the ten dollar a day program. Mm-hmm. You know, so so much for free enterprise. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, what about parents? Uh, tell me again. What are parents telling just, you? What's the reaction from your clients? 
they want the ten dollar a day program, but they haven't. They don't know what's happening to the operators, right? So, I get calls like, "When is this program happening?" And I say, "Well, okay, it's in a prototype state right now." So. A lot of non-profit, and I know um, some Aboriginal daycares have been offered the program, but not all, just a few, right, in each area, right? So they're going through um, the $10-a-day program. So there's been a couple on the North Shore which, you know, spurred on the phone calls from my families asking when they're going to get it. But they just hear the news and the government, you know, speak about this, but they don't understand what's happening to the operators, Right. It's going to be very interesting to see what the response is from other operators. You know, you, you've shared your you're sharing your views yeah. with us, and I again, I think I, I I can't imagine that you're the only one who feels as you no. do. do. Do you have a sense that you know this is supposed to go into effect by 2025? Do you have any sense that we're going to see uh, significant diminishing in the number of daycare operations that are around by then because oh. of what you've explained to us? Yes, I, I think so. I think a lot of people are talking about exiting the, the daycare business right now. So I think that uh, they're gonna, you're going to see, you know, you're going to see some government, you know, um, created spaces, right? And you're also going to see a lot more people exiting this daycare system, I'm sure. And we're not talking about uh, daycare spaces for every child in Canada. I, I, mean, I, I think know. there's a perception out there. I don't know. I just know that there's been a lot more calls since we, you know, the families have been home with COVID. We have a lot more babies right now. So we're getting like 20 emails and calls a day looking for spaces. And we just, you know, we're registering now into November, December 2022 with limited spaces. And um, we, we don't have any more spaces. We have over 300 individual families right now that we look after, right? All of our spaces filled full-time, part-time. And so if they're talking about limiting the way that we can make money, I don't know. I don't think we can make it. So I don't know how you can survive at 3% because you have no idea where your costs are going to go. So if they, you know, if, 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 your, if your accountant's uh, deductions are, predictions are, expectations are, mm-hmm. that you're going to top out at 3%, Mm-hmm. I don't know how you. I don't know how you plan for the unexpected. We don't know where food prices are going. We don't know where energy prices are going. Mm-hmm. So th- these are all things that you cannot. Uh, you know, you really you, you have no idea where. Well, you have an idea, but you're not sure where they're going. So you can't really plan for it. Correct. Yes, and we have lease lease to pay, right? And yeah, yeah of course. Some people it's, own their own buildings, and I'm hearing that people that own their own buildings don't get. Um, it has to be within an arm's length transaction, so they're not even going to get any help with their mortgage for their building. So this is what happens when you put bureaucracy in charge. Mm, yeah, they just hire more bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. So, is the one-income family then the two-parent one-income family mm-hmm. still in a disadvantageous position? Because one of the points that was raised again and again and again when I've talked about this issue in the past, is the two-income family can uh, can claim their expenses, their daycare expenses at income tax time, but the one-income two-parent family cannot claim their child-rearing expenses. So mm-hmm. we're still in that same boat, are we? Yes, I feel that way. Um, there's a lot of parents that that need more help, right, and they and they deserve it. Right, so you know, you know, there's a baby bonus right now for low-income families. Why can't they just increase their baby bonus so they can afford more, more things? You know, maybe they can put that towards their daycare or 
food or rent or whatever, but, you know, to throw all this, you know, if if everybody everybody qualifies for a daycare space, if there is any, so someone is making $500,000 and they're still paying $10 a day. And my I hear, I hear that they're holding their space, but they don't always use it, you see? Professor Sildan Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory, also professor at Dalhousie University, because we, you know, we just kind of absconded with the professor. He has another interview scheduled, but I grabbed him because I know you want to hear what he has to say. We've had a lot of emails when Professor Charlebois was with us last weekend talking about food security, cost, and a lack of direct focus on agriculture in the federal budget. One email from one listener was essentially saying, for the first time in my life, I'm putting food back onto the shelf because I can't afford it. Uh, Sylvan, thank you very much for taking the time. We'll get through this quickly with you. I'll let you get to your other in- interview. But when it comes to the issue, and this has been raised uh, email after email, where do we stand actually uh, on the issue of food security and where the cost of food is going? In the grand scheme of things, uh Canadian consumers have been well served by the food industry, to be honest. I know things are rough right now, and, and, and the food inflation rate is actually quite high. Well, over the last three decades, uh, we've actually had access to one of the cheapest food baskets in the world. In fact, uh, Can- Canadians are number five in the world in terms of uh, spending the lowest percentage uh, of, uh, of their budget on food. So uh, we're number five, which is uh, number one, of course, is the United States. But we're number five, so things aren't too bad in Canada. Uh, the problem, of course, is that things are shifting very quickly, uh, both in, in, in the United States and Canada. When you have an inflation rate of over 8%, people notice, uh, and people's behavior will change. And, and that's really what's happening right now. So where are we going? Is there any way to really know what's going to be happening with the price of food for the balance of 2022? We, we talked about that a bit last weekend, and it was really strongly reacted to. What, do you, what can you share with us? Well, you know, I, I mean, my job is to basically uh, tell Canadians what the data is telling us. And uh, the situation is just not pretty right now. Uh, we're... Mid-April, uh, we're looking at farmers. Uh, pl- farmers are planning to uh, to plant this year. They should uh, make good money uh, if Mother Nature uh, cooperates, which wasn't the case last year, but they should be making good money. The problem, of course, is that you have many regions around the world impacted by this uh, awful conflict uh, in uh, in Ukraine. And so um, I, I think a lot of people have noticed for the first time probably that uh, the Ukraine is, is a, a really key region of the world when it comes to uh, grain supplies and fertilizers. So we have to basically operate this year without relying on that region, which is not going to be easy. So hopefully yields will be up, production will be good, and uh, and uh, we should be fine. Access-wise, I don't think we should experience any problems. Uh, however, we are expecting 8 to 10 million people to experience famine over the next six months, unfortunately, and that will be in Northeast Africa and parts of the Middle East. Yeah, and that's a very disturbing number. Uh, we also had concern about the federal government in its budget two weeks ago not having anything specific about agriculture for this country. 
No, this week, actually, I had, uh, after we spoke last week, uh, this week I had an opportunity to talk to, uh, oh, uh, about, to about 150 uh, public uh, servants uh, in the Canadian government, uh, people in Ag Canada, FCC, CFIA. Uh, they were all listening in to, uh, to my webinar to them about the budget, and I did uh, register my deep concerns about uh, how the budget failed to make our agriculture more efficient. Uh, of course, it's, it's the, the whole focus of the budget was to make uh, agriculture greener, which is not a bad idea, but uh, this year I think wasn't really the best time. I think we needed more to help farmers, to help processing, to help everyone in the uh, value chain to become more efficient, to make sure that we have access to affordable foods. And of course, uh, to help other countries in need, because there are going to be a lot of countries uh, in trouble this year. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 